Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad you have come along for this important episode. And I think this is going to be something that'll be important for everybody who's kind of taking in some of the popular messages in our culture. And so I think you'll find this author helpful to you. He's been helpful to me. I'm, I'm thankful for his book, but I'm going to introduce him to you in just a second. But first, I want you to know this podcast comes to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we've never had more students than we have right now. This is an exciting time in the life of our seminary, particularly with the emergence of the global Methodist church. And we're privileged to be able to serve so many pastors who are serving in that church. But on top of that, people from all kinds of denominations, independent churches across the country. So we have uh, across the country, across the world, we have uh, bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, lay initiatives. We'd love for you to check out at wbs.edu. Also, I'm thankful to my friends at WPO Development. They're a group that comes alongside churches and institutions um, organizations, nonprofits, and and they help them come up with a plan that they can actualize, particularly as it relates to like capital campaigns. So often people just want to come in and raise a bunch of money and they actually don't think about who they are and what it means to kind of present yourself in a community. So I encourage you to check out WPODevelopment.com and you'll find some information about them in my show notes. Also, I have several things available to you for you from andymillerthird.com. That's andymillerii.com. If you sign up for my email list, I'll send you this a tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching session and a document that you can use to prepare your messages or like just basic Sunday school class presentations that you might have. I'd love to send that to you if you sign up for my email list. In addition to that, I have a couple of courses, small group studies, my books, and things that are available at that site. I'd love you to check, for you to check that out at andymillerthethird.com. All right. I am glad to welcome in the podcast Thad Williams, who serves as a professor of theology at Biola University. Um, and he's written a new book called Don't Follow Your Heart. Thad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's a joy to be with you, Andy. Hey, so Dad, before we get going too far, I just love to hear a little bit about you. I've I've seen some talks that you've done online. Appreciate the work that you're doing, and particularly the way it speaks into this cultural moment. But I don't know really anything about you besides the fact that you teach at Biola. So just tell us who Thad is. Sure, uh, professional interpretive dancer. Okay. Um, <laughs> world ranked bodybuilder. Well, that's obvious. And, uh, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> No, I, uh, I'm a theologian slash apologist. I uh, teach at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Okay. Um, I'm really sort of my bread and butter, the apologetics, um, Christianity and culture. Um, I come from the Kuyperian tradition. I did my PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam. Okay. Um, so kudos to you for allowing a Calvinist on your show. I know. Dun, there dun, it is. Dun. <laughs> uh, but no, dr really driven by the conviction that I'm sure you shared that um, all truth is Christ's truth. Jesus Amen. is Lord over every square inch of reality. So he should be Lord over how we think of uh, business and philosophy and psychology and brewing coffee and anything else you could possibly imagine. Uh, so that's really the heartbeat of my ministry is turning people on to the Lordship of Jesus over every square inch. Amen. I think even a Wesleyan would affirm all of those things. That's great. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, Thad, my, my son, uh, my 14-year-old son went away to a ski retreat. I have 16 and 14-year-old sons. And they um he came back and he texted me early in the morning and he said, dad, I was up till 2 a.m. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was a little worried if I'm going to strip. I said, well, why, why were you up till 2 a.m.? And he said, I was debating with a Calvinist. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, you know, as uh, somebody who works in theology, I was like, you know, you have your first date, first dance, first kiss. But I'm like, ah, son. First Calvinist debate. Yeah, That's... your first Calvinist debate. Congratulations. <laughs> and I, actually, I love it. <laughs> That's right. And and you might say the same thing. Uh, uh, it, it, it's a great moment for him and to, to think about what he believes. And I, I want him just like I think we all want for our children to like to pursue truth. And I said, you know, we we might be wrong. We might we yeah. check this out. Check this out. So maybe you might, you might be wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just for clarity. Yeah, I have a, a seven year old boy and he came home from baseball practice the other day and he didn't say he had just debated an Arminian. He said, I just owned a Pelagian. And I was <laughs> like, okay, I respect that. You know, what, what are they teaching you on that T-ball team? You know, that's right. <laughs> uh, 
Theologians' <laughs> children should get together. They have some interesting stories to share. <laughs> that should yeah. be a new series. Yes, theologians' children debating. I love it. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. So, so um, what? Tell me about your academic research. Tell me about your dissertation. Did you do it on Kuiper? Uh, not quite. So I did uh, the problem of evil. Okay. And it was about a four-year research project for the dissertation when all was said and done from conception to public defense, um, pretty much solved the problem of evil, I think. Oh, congratulations. First year. So <laughs> and, uh, cross, we, we can check that box. It's just, it's just solved. Um, right. You're welcome. No, just kidding. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Fine. <laughs> so I was really zooming in on the, uh, the free will defense specifically okay. uh, the relational free will defense. Uh, God didn't want a universe populated with chatty Cathy dolls and robots who um, just recite a pre-programmed I love you. Um, he wants authentic love. And as the argument goes, libertarian free will is a precondition of authentic love. And so that is the relational free will defense. You find it in, in C.S. Lewis. Uh, yeah. You find versions of it as far back as, as Plato uh, in the Aristotle. Um, Augustine, early Augustine gives a version of the argument, and it's uh, it's wildly popular today, maybe the most popular uh, Christian sure. response to the problem of evil. And so I approached the relational free will defense philosophically, uh, biblically, and pastorally, and show that uh, it doesn't work. Hello. Okay. Yeah. The way you were explained there, I thought you were saying you're going to defend it. And I thought, well, I, th I thought you said you're a Calvinist. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think there's there's some better ways to, to approach okay. the problem. And uh, for me, really, um, if you push the logic of the relational free will defense. No, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like, and let's say I have um, a buddy whose marriage is struggling. Yeah. And I know that um, there's some some anti-love patterns and habits that are giving uh, him and his wife a hard time. Uh, the way I would pray for them is similar to the way Paul would pray in, say, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, when he says, may God cause you to increase and abound in love. Uh, or if I have a, a non-believing neighbor who has zero affection for Jesus, doesn't know um, his or her creator, I would pray for them pretty definitively to increase and abound in love for their creator. And so I would argue that God, part of God being God, is he has a unique and sovereign access to the human heart to reorder our affections so that we can love authentically, and he can do that because he's God without reducing us to robots. Hmm. Um, so all, all that research is in a book with uh, Lexham Press called okay. uh, God Reforms Hearts. Um, okay. God Reforms Hearts, Rethinking Free Will and the Problem of Evil. Interesting. I had um, one of my one of my professors, uh, people, uh, uh, philosophers, I appreciate a lot, Jerry Walls. And he yeah. wrote um, uh, I, one of it. He, he responded to Alvin Plantinga's uh, free will argument. And uh, there was a place where. You know, it, it, I think it was the article was might have been something like why Alvin Plantinga hasn't gone far enough or something with the free will. Why, why a free will defense doesn't go far enough? Maybe you've seen the article. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, he, he, one time he read in class this um, Alvin Plantinga's response, and it just said at one point he finally said Jerry Walls is right about this or that, and then it says but he misses, but he just stopped right there. Jerry Walls is right. I appreciate that tradition. I've been yeah. reading Jerry Wall's uh, work for ever since he came out with uh, him and Scott Burson did. Oh, yeah. The, sort um, of a biopic on C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. And uh, then I, didn't he write Why I'm Not a Calvinist or something like that? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I interact quite a bit with Jerry Walls. I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so the tradition I'm in, um, the kind of evangelical Wesleyan world, um, a lot of folks were connected to him through Asbury Theological Seminary, and then also like Wesley Biblical Seminary, we're kind of in that same kind of lane. 
in Wesleyanism, which is in, in an interesting moment now, as there is this break with United Methodism, where most evangelical Methodists, most, I say most, yeah. are a part of some type of new denomination. So it, it, it's thinkers like that who have been really helpful and, and somebody like that with a clear philosophical foundation that's helped even identify some of these realities, particularly like things about the nature of heaven and hell. Um, so anyways, it's, it's, I'm glad, I'm glad that he's, his writings made his way to, to you. Yeah. So. It, it's a rare bird in these debates who can, who's conversant with the underlying issues in analytic philosophy and the biblical exegesis end of it. Uh, and right. he's, uh, he's one of those rare birds. So yeah. Right. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, tell me real briefly, you mentioned one son playing t-ball. Any other children you have in your, yeah. you have any other children? Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. Us. So little, little Hendrick, uh, okay. Hendrick is seven and uh, he's a, a giant Chiefs fan. So he's oh, happy. really happy. I don't know when this will air, but he's pretty pumped that we, we inched out the, the bills just, just last night. Um, so we're going to the division playoffs. He loves the chiefs. He loves monster trucks. He loves, uh, race cars. Uh, he's, he's sort of an all American boy. And he just told my wife, uh, about a week ago, uh, said, mommy, I love Jesus so much. I just love Jesus so much. Can daddy baptize me? Oh. And so that was like one of those highlight moments of, of ever, um, so there's little Henry and then he's got a big sister who just turned 10, uh, like a week ago. Uh, that's Harlow. Okay. Harlow is like the little Uber genius of the family. When she was three years old, I was putting her to bed and I was praying, you know, Jesus, thank you for making Harlow so beautiful and so smart and so silly and so ticklish and so smiley. Amen. And three-year-old Harlow looks up at me and says, dad, you forgot to mention erudite. So, so after I Googled erudite, I was like, oh yeah, extremely intelligent. Yeah, that tracks. Okay. Um, so she's she's a little genius. We have uh, Holland, who we call Dutch for short. She's actually oh. on the cover of the book. That's her. Oh, is that her? Okay. Um, I would say that's her book cover modeling debut, but I managed to sneak the kids somewhere on the cover of all of my books. Oh, interesting. Um, so this is her, I guess, her fifth um, cover modeling gig. Uh, she is into volleyball and loves Jesus. I got to baptize her on Father's Day uh, this last June, which was pretty incredible. Uh, and then we have a 19-year-old Gracie, uh, Gracelyn, and she is um, applying her skills at barista-ing uh, right go. now. And hopefully uh, she'll be at, at Biola here in the next year studying under her old man. There you go. That'll be interesting. Well, thanks <laughs> yeah, for sharing. I like to get to know people a little bit before we get, I imagine your kids might even been behind uh, wanting to write a book like this, not having a 19 year old, every chapter begins with a hashtag. So uh, yeah. this, this, uh, I, I really, I think this is a pro, I mean, it's a great time for a book like this to come out. Of course, this, these ideas have been present for a while. It's called don't follow your heart, boldly breaking the 10 commandments of self-worship. So tell tell us kind of what was the context for you wanting to pursue this project? Yeah, a lot of it was just being a dad. You know, my wife mm -hmm. and I looking at um, the propaganda coming at our kids from virtually every direction. Yeah. Um, where you have sort of the, the traditional Disney plot line coming from the classics, from the vault, like Cinderella. Uh, there's a way that kindness and humility and gentleness triumph over vanity and cruelty. Mm. Um, Pinocchio, the way to become a real boy uh, is through courage. Pinocchio sacrificing his life to save Geppetto from the sea monster Monstro. Um, but the more he lies, the less real boy-like he becomes, the more tree-like he becomes, right? And his nose turns into it. A tree branch, he goes off to Pleasure Island and makes a literal ass out of himself, sprouting donkey ears and a donkey tail. Um, so the traditional Disney corpus that we were probably raised on, uh, these stories unfold within a morally structured universe uh, where there's a way to flourish and thrive as a human being and a way to 
be less than a real boy or a real girl. Well, I noticed um, I was writing uh, in my backyard. We have this little courtyard and I was working on an article and I could overhear in our living room that's right behind me here. Uh, the kids were watching, the girls were watching the My Little Pony movie. Mm. And it has a song called Time to Be Awesome. And the lyrics are, you know, take the Storm King's rules and toss them. It's time to be you, time to be awesome. It's sort of this anthem to, to self-definition, to, to asserting, um, be, being authentic to your own feelings and emotions. And as that song is playing, uh, to my right, to my left, a car pulls into um, our little street and is blasting the anthem, the overplayed anthem from Frozen, let it go, let it go, um, yeah. with the famous line, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And yeah. so this, this new uh, ideology of self-rule, autonomy, follow your heart, be true to yourself, you do you, live your best life, YOLO. I saw that this is coming at kids from very tender ages. And so by the time they grow up and end up in the university, it's just the, the indoctrination has largely occur occurred. And so my job as a university professor is often to sort of detox students, to inoculate mm. them, to, uh, to immunize them to this false gospel of self-worship that they've been getting from mm. actually every direction. Yes. It, I was uh, at a with a research group at the University of Manchester this past summer, and there was a, a colleague of mine who was there who had grown up in a similar tradition as mine. And um, but I but had since it, it were not recently kind of liberalized on all of the key points of of culture at this point from um, same-sex marriage to the existence of truth and all I mean it just yeah. is all there and um and he's just describing for me his journey and then the next day we are going to an event together and he had a shirt on and the shirt was a picture a silhouette of himself <laughs> smoking a cigar and then I didn't know it was actually of him and below it it had his last name ology so like for me, Miller, like Miller ology. Oh, so I said to him, I said, so what's, what's up with your shirt? I mean, is that you? What's the deal? He said, no, no, no. This is my, this is my new perspective. You know, like we both grew up in the holiness movement, holiness tradition. He's like, yeah. all that I love, the camp meeting, all that stuff. He's like, now, like, this is my, this is the way I approach life now. Yeah. I'm like, it is. That's exactly it. Yep. Uh, so it's so sad. I mean, like, don't you realize like what you're taking? And now it doesn't have to be theology. It could be biology. It could be any other thing. But what is it that's what is it that's being exalted? It's the self. It's like the individual. And yeah, yeah. which which let me uh, let me sort of frame your your buddy's shirt uh, theologically. Um, G.K. Chesterton, uh, you know, the great uh, Roman Catholic humorist and uh, novelist, yeah. crime novel author, and just theologian extraordinaire. He said, Christianity came into the world firstly in order to assert with violence that a man had not only to look inwards, but to look outwards, to behold with astonishment and enthusiasm a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian was that a man was not left alone with their inner light, but definitely recognized an outer light fair as the sun. Mm. And so I, I love the way Chesterton sets it up right out of the gate is look, Christianity is the antithesis of this um, Millerology or Williamsology yeah. um, where if I'm looking within for answers, which I document in the book, over 90% of Americans said, if you want answers, look within. If, mm. if you look within you don't find answers. You, you end up with a bad case of claustrophobia. You're trapped wow. in your own head, right? Yeah. You, uh, David Foster Wallace, the great postmodern novelist said that we become Kings and Queens of our tiny skull sized kingdoms. Wow. Right? We're, we're trapped in wow. our own little skull sized kingdoms. And I'm arguing that, you know, I <laughs> just this, a week ago today, actually, I was in uh, Minnesota 
speaking for a Martin Luther King Jr. Day event hmm. at an EV free conference out there. And uh, it was minus seven degrees, <laughs> which is a <laughs> Southern California boy I'm not so used to. Uh, wind chill put it at minus 30 degrees. Um, so once I thawed out with God's frozen chosen up there, um, can you say frozen chosen? Oh, yeah, I'm not allowed. It won't come not out. Allowed. Of Yes. Yeah, right. Oh man, think of the good jokes you're missing out on, man. <laughs> it's right there. On the tip. Uh, you said it for yourself. I didn't even have to say it. <laughs> so anyway, I had the. Uh, there's about 150 church leaders and pastors there, and I talked for a little bit about expressive individualism, this cult of self-worship that's all around us, and that's really sort of the context we find ourselves in. And I said, um, you know, turn to your neighbor and say, "You're awesome." And they all had a blast with that, turning to each other. You're awesome. And I'm like, yeah, theologically, you're sitting next to an image bearer of God. C.S. Lewis famously said, you, you never uh, have met a mere mortal, right? right. Every, every image bearer of God, you're, you're interacting with awesomely eternal beings. Yeah. Um, now I said, turn to your neighbor and say, you're nowhere near as awesome as God. And they had a blast with that telling each other you're nowhere near as awesome as God. And so that's really one of the, the driving arguments of the book is that self-worship in the final analysis robs us of awe. We're mm. designed to be awestruck by something, or rather someone, infinitely more interesting than we are. Amen. And if I'm swept up with Williamsology or you know a devotee to Millerology or your buddy's you know, yeah. self-obsession... It, it sounds, it, it markets itself as cool and edgy and trendy. It's really just robbing us of awe for literally the most awesome being in existence. Yeah, I love how at one point in the book, you end up saying like not to look in, but to look up. Not that it has to be kind of like a spatially driven sure. type of thing as if God is up or down. But I, I, just one thing I love about the book that you do is there's a chapter where you work through the details, philosophical assumptions, theological assumptions, and then you have a testimony in each chapter of somebody who has walked beyond that particular lie or that particular, as you call it, like the, the you know uh, the ten ten commandments of the yeah. self worship. But then um, I, I love I, I forget what it's called heretics something like a heretics guide heretics it, manual yeah I hear, yeah it's, so you get you get out of it and one of the, one of those is just like to go and just be in awe like to go and look up you know yeah. to <laughs> seeing how great thou art to seeing holy 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 is are those type of practices antidotes to this problem. Yeah, the, in many ways, there, there's a lot of, there's a growing field of positive psychology um, studying awe. What, what are the effects of being awestruck by something bigger than yourself on the human psyche? And so out of uh, Arizona State University, there's a researcher named Michelle Shiota, and she documents that, you know, 35,000 people a year make the inconvenient trek to Nepal to to gaze upon the majesty of Mount Everest, 35,000. Um, 3.5 million a year um, go to Yosemite to marvel at, say, Half Dome. Mm. Um, 4.5 million uh, go to the Grand Canyon. And, and nobody goes to the Grand Canyon or Half Dome or Mount Everest to feel big about themselves, right? Nobody right, stands sure. on, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, behold me in all of my That's glory. Right. You yeah. go to feel small, to be so, again, awestruck at something bigger than yourself. There's something really, really freeing in the self-forgetfulness that comes from being awestruck. And so in, in Shiota's research, she found that uh, in a mental state of awe, people are, um, their cognitive faculties function way better. So uh, mm -hmm. she would have her study subjects read a, an article or something just riddled with fallacies and falsehoods. Uh, and then she would subject them to what she called elicitors of awe, and people mm -hmm. were harder to dupe. People could exactly. think more clearly. They could spot bad arguments. Uh, there's a researcher in positive psychology studying awe out here where I am in Southern California at UCI, a guy named Paul Piff. And he's found that um, by subjecting people to elicitors of awe, they become more what he calls pro-social. They love their neighbors better. 
Uh, they care more about the environment or God's creation. Uh, just the the science is slowly catching up to the scriptures, right? Scriptures have been telling us for millennia that we are designed for, in Hebrew, yira. Yira is reverence, awe, the fear of the Lord. Um, and so it, it seems like the, the Bible's had it right all along, that really an antidote to and there's documentation on this, that if you are depressed, if you're trapped in your skull-sized kingdom, if you're suffering panic, anxiety, things like that, um, one of the most basic remedies is getting out into nature, getting out into God's creation, stopping to smell the flowers, yeah. you know, watching the, the cloud formations float across the sky, um, watching the the blue sky turned dark purple and the clouds turn dark orange and pink. And then the stars come out that has a demonstrable measurable effect in reducing rates of depression and anxiety. Hmm. So yeah, every chapter ends with um, here's some, some tips that today you could go out and live with more reverence for God and be more countercultural in the book. I say, be a heretic against yeah. the cult of self-worship. Uh, and so the book has probably 50 um, sort of daily liturgies you can practice to, to help resist the draw of narcissism. Yeah, I love how you have a, a heretic's prayer too in that. Yeah. And it, it's all this kind of turning things just in, in the opposite direction. And I think that, that just, it helps me, it, your book helped me think through that a little better. I, I also, I enjoyed thinking of this skull-sized reality that we can yeah. experience. I, I'm a fan of Rich Mullins and I had uh, his biographer, um, James Brian Smith on my, on my podcast uh, last year or so. Um, but I, had, I, I can't remember the song that you quote here at the beginning of the Follow Your Heart chapter, um, but it's a similar idea. They, they said, boy, you must follow your heart but my heart just led me into my chest. Yeah. But the father of hearts, he is the one I have chosen and I will follow him. Mm. Oh, I love that. Like it, it just it leads us, leads us inward. And that's yeah. going to happen. And, and as you said, my, my favorite part of the book personally is the, the end of every chapter, as you pointed out, I have um, sort of a heretics confession. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, recruited some of my favorite heretics who were rebelling against the cult of self-worship. So you're going to hear stories from <clears throat> the great apologist, uh, Josh McDowell, and how he, he found freedom from following his heart. Uh, my personal mentor, dear friend, uh, JP Moreland, uh, my colleague at Talbot, talking about how he found freedom from the burden of self. Uh, you have Johnny Erickson Tata, who's just a brilliant, brilliant theologian, Christian mind, author and artist, how Jesus set her free from the cult of self-worship. Carl Truman adds his voice to the list. Um, so yeah, I was, I was pretty honored at some of the voices willing to step up and, and share their, their own sort of heretic stories. And then it all sort of culminates in the end. Uh, the final chapter is what I call the heretics manifesto, yeah. which has gotten um, somewhere around a thousand signatures, but it, and it's it's growing by the day. But if uh, listeners want to check it out and sort of get a, a sneak peek, yeah, at, you can read the whole manifesto. You can watch uh, some videos, some podcasts, read some articles, some supplementary material to the book. Uh, if you just go to jointheheretics.com. Right. Jointheheretics.com. It's got um, all the resources there at your fingertips and uh, you can read the manifesto and add your name to the growing list. So awesome. join, join the heretics. Let's do it. <laughs> I love it. JP Moore. I had JP Moreland on last year to talk about his book on miracles. And so I'll just uh, turn you over to his hands as it relates to human freedom. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he and I have a 20 year long uh, running feud over the free will question. We have a lot of fun together. I'm sure you do. Oh, I, I so appreciate and I, you know, his recent stuff too on the human constitution. I, I, you know, he's just been such a gift to church. So what a what a blessing for you to be able to work with him. Um, yeah, we're good pals. I want to. I, I love. Okay, before I, I want to get into a few of the, the actual um, hashtag chapters. Um, well, wait, let, let me just interject real quick because it, it it ties in J.P. Moreland with what we were just talking. Oh, about. Oh, good, good. Um, so J.P. 
uh, his office is about a first down away from mine, you know, about okay. 10, 10 yards apart. And so I just saw him, uh, I bumped into him last Wednesday and the typical greeting, uh, from him will be something like good morning, idiot, or how you doing <laughs> moron. Uh, and you know, here's JP Moreland, one of the top 50, according to time magazine, one of the top 50 living thinkers and philosophers. Uh, and here he is, you know, calling me an idiot fairly regularly. And, uh, <laughs> before listeners think, Oh, well, JP belongs on, you know, time magazine's top 50 living insensitive jerks list. But let me explain <laughs> what he means. Um, it's actually a blessing. JP understands, and this is part of what I'm arguing in the book, that when you take God seriously, it frees you up from having to take yourself that seriously. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's what G.K. Chesterton, excuse me, what G.K. Chesterton was after when he said, uh, angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. Mm -hmm. Angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. And so, uh, so JP is a, a healthy uh, weekly reminder. Hey, Williams, don't take yourself so seriously. Like you're an wow. idiot C compared <laughs> to the infinite uh, omniscience, all powerful, sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. You're an idiot. And so it's okay to laugh at yourself. And that's part of what I'm up to in the book is yeah. trying to pass on that freedom from the burden of self. When you mm -hmm. take God more seriously, when you follow God's heart instead of your heart, um, yeah, life gets exponentially easier because you're not center stage trying to prove anything. Right. Amen. Yeah. Um, you, my dad said this line long before I heard Dave Ramsey say it on a radio show, but when people ask him how he's doing, he, he always responds, I'm doing better than I deserve. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, better reserve. And so there's like this sense that of putting yourself in the in a proper position, um, even when you answer a question like that. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I I love this little section that you have. It caught me by surprise. I forget which chapter is in, but you have a imaginary dialogue with Foucault. And this is a big oh, yeah. part of what you're doing in the book. And um I of interacting with these kind of key players, key thinkers, and finding their contemporary voices as well. But you went right, you kind of imagine going back in 1984. Tell, tell me a little bit about that and maybe even describe what, what you're trying to do in that conversation. Sure. So so part of the the bigger case I'm building is, you know, if, if let's take a hypothetical teenager, um, let's call him, I don't know, Chaz. And Chaz is, uh, you know, he's watched his his fair share of follow your heart propaganda, and he finds himself um, with a desire. That, let's say Chaz is growing up in uh, North Ireland uh, near Belfast, okay. and Chaz finds within himself a desire to uh, to fight. Um. And somebody comes along and says, follow your heart. Uh, he may think he's being true to himself because he finds within himself emotions for, for aggression and courage and um, the, the will to fight. But if you pick um, little Chaz up by the scruff of his neck and you drop him in, um, I don't know, the gender studies department at Berkeley, and now he finds within himself this desire to explore his inner interpretive dancer um, or explore, you know, his gender identity. Maybe he needs to, you know, rebrand himself as, as Chazalina or something and, and, and change his pronouns. Sure. And now he's going to zoom in on, wait, there's these certain classically feminine uh, emotions that I'm experiencing. So, so in both scenarios, um, little Chaz will be convinced he's following his heart. In reality, he's actually doing the bidding of mm. ideologues in whatever plausibility structure he finds himself within uh, who are who've turned him into a good little obedient cow, to borrow Nietzsche's terminology. He's just joined the herd of right. whatever's around him. 
all the while um, duped into thinking he's being the Ubermatch. He's being the Superman. He's charting his own path. He's really just uh, just mooing in, in obedience to wherever he finds himself. And so folks who um, are following their hearts, hashtag following their hearts, tend to be doing the bidding oftentimes of ideologues they've never even heard of. Right, right, right. And so, you know, maybe they've never heard of Jean-Paul Sartre in his existential philosophy saying, you just exist. Now it's on you to create your essence through an act mm -hmm. of willpower. You create your own reality. They might have never read being and nothingness, but they are marching like good little cows in obedience to, to the ideology of Saint Sartre. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they couldn't quote thus spake Zarathustra. They, they don't know how to pr properly pronounce Frederick Nietzsche, yeah, right? right? But they are buying into his ideology that um, you need to devour traditional morality and you need to assert your will to power and be your authentic self. Um, Foucault is one of the big ones. Foucault sort of sexualizes Nietzsche. Um, for Nietzsche, you know, by, by spitting on the contemptible type of well-being dreamed up by shopkeepers, cows, Democrats, and other Christians, that's a Nietzsche quote, um, Foucault says, well, the way to spit at that contemptible, outdated morality is by um, spitting on traditional sexual morality. And so through acts that culture would consider uh, sexually deviant, um, you are enacting this kind of Nietzschean revolution and you are, Foucault says flat out that sex is worth dying for. Mm -hmm. um, so sexual expression becomes now the way to follow your heart. So if you have a desire, let's say somebody's watching, I don't know, Fight Club and they see Brad Pitt with no shirt on. 20 years ago, maybe, if you're a dude watching that, you'd think there's an attractive dude and you'd sort of go on with your life. Now, under Foucault's and the other gender theorists like Judith Butler and John Money and Wilhelm Reich and Harry Benjamin and Alfred Kinsey, these, these thinkers yeah. who have shaped our moment, now it's like, whoa, I just thought Brad Pitt looked good with his shirt off. I need to really press into that feeling. And I have... I have to be as obedient to my emotions as right. the Muslim is to the Quran or the Christian is to the scriptures. So what does this mean about, so now it's not just a, a fleeting moment of attraction. Now this is my identity and to mm. be authentic, I need to obey that version of myself or I'm mm. living a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And man, I could just tell you once people start thinking about everything in terms of this is my identity, this emotion, right. right. He finds me, you know, they, they have never heard of Michel Foucault for the most part, but they are um, good, faithful devotees to mm -hmm. this ideologue. And if you look at the architects of this expressive individualism and the sexualized version of that, you could scarcely find a more miserable bunch. Right. Foucault was suicidal throughout his adult life. Um, he was a sadomasochist. He, after he knew he had contracted AIDS, mm -hmm. sadly, in the early 80s, he was one of the first sort of public figures uh, to get HIV. He continued to indulge his, uh, to live out his false gospel of sexual indulgence. And who knows how many people um, he ended up killing in the process. Mm. If you look at um, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, he was a pill popper um, where he said towards the end of his life, you know, he would, he would hide vodka behind his books in his library and he would, you know, pop dozens of pills every day. He was a miserable man with a long trail of carnage behind him of women that he would, um, he was a sexual predator. If you look at, at, at John Money, if you look at um, Jacques Derrida, if, if you look at the actual, people who thought up what is now being put to catchy tunes in Disney films, mm. you will, again, it's hard to find a more miserable bunch. And the folks who are following in their footsteps are inheriting the, the same misery. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a reason that, that anxiety and depression and suicidality, are, those rates are breaking records. 
Right. And it has a lot to do with, I mean, it, there's not a single explanation, but one of the factors I would argue is we've bought into this age old lie of the serpent in Genesis three, that you can define your own reality, that you could be the center point of your own existence. Right. I thank you for laying that out. And it was really, I just encourage people to find this book and then to find that, that chapter, particularly where you lay out this conversation of you just going back and forth with Foucault. And also just, I appreciate you highlighting, like, this is what's going to come from all that. And uh, sadly, we're probably about the same age, kids similar age. Um, I'm anticipating that my children and, and me in my older years, I'll be dealing with uh, as somebody else uh, has identified the, the refugees of the sexual revolution. Yes. Yep. We're dealing with yep. the reality that that people will have destroyed their bodies because of listening to these voices and listening to these leaders, even if they're not the one, even they didn't read it themselves, even they just picked up on it from Elsa and any other Disney character along the way. This is this is a wild time, and there's a sense that this this your book is helping us just identify these lies yeah. at the front. So and especially I, for parents, for parents who are raising kids in this cultural moment. Um, I think they will particularly find helpful the the habits, the routines, the the liturgies that I recommend at the end of every chapter. So something I do literally on the dinner table uh, right behind me, uh, we do some basic liturgies where M every Monday. Okay. We call it Magnificent Monday, and we go around the dinner table. What's something magnificent about God? You know what okay. what's something that makes God awesome? Uh, we do. Um, Terrible Tuesdays, what's something terrible in the world or in, in your life or in your friend's lives or, or somebody's life that we can pray for? And um, then we do Wicked Wednesdays. Wicked Wednesdays, okay. it's not the kid's favorite, but it's pretty okay. essential because it's a time for family confession. We go around and here's here's something I really messed up this week. Here is a sin that I gave into this week. Wow. And so they're learning that they are not the moral authority in the universe. They're mm -hmm. learning that that God is the moral authority and that we fail to follow his heart. And so we, we can confess and take that to the cross together. Then we do thankful Thursdays where, you know, what's something we're grateful to God for this week. It could be, you know, the taste of this burrito right now. It could be, yeah. um, you know, the sunrise this morning, whatever it might be. And then we do freaked out Fridays, freaked out Friday. What's something freaking you out? What's something that's got you anxious hmm. and nervous and that way they learn because, man, follow your heart. If you look at the anxiety rates and how they've skyrocketed, you know, John Haidt and Greg Lukanoff document yeah, yeah, as well like mm -hmm. in the book Coddling in the American Mind. Um, anxiety rates have hit historic highs. So if you're telling somebody follow your heart and they look within, and it's just this tangled mess of anxiety. What what terrible advice. Yeah, it's just sure. mean. And, and the final analysis is just mean because people buckle under the impossible weight of constructing and then sustaining their own identity. That's a God-sized task. God's much better at authoring our lives than we are. So Freaked Out Fridays, we're able to say, look, here's what's actually in our hearts. We got all these irrational fears. Let's bring them before the sovereignty of God. Yeah. And so just basic day-in, day-out liturgies that remind us that we aren't the center point of existence, is how you raise the next generation of heretics. Mm, I love it. Um, the, I appreciate one of the disciplines that you had at the end of the chapter for the chapter on, I, I have it here, uh, the answers are within, hashtag the answers are within, is to just go through that list from Haidt and Lukanoff to just look at those nine things and say, which one of these, which, which, which are these happening in my life? So like yeah. you have emotional reasoning, catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, yeah. thinking. Thank you for um, <laughs> uh, mind reading, labeling, negative filtering, uh, discounting positives, blaming. Going through these, I think it's a helpful thing because these are tendencies that we have. And um, in our in, in the Western tradition, one of the things that like to emphasize through band meetings and class meetings that John Wesley put into place. And I'm part of one of these that meets every Thursday at 7 a.m. One of the, we asked like the, the guys in the group in a band meetings, like three to five people and you, you um, all of the same gender. And so you come and you ask five questions of each other. And one of them is, where have I sinned this week? 
And then are there any secrets that I'm withholding, yeah. right? Yeah. To, to try to give an opportunity for this to come out at some point. So yeah. um, anyway, th- th- I, I like that you have opportunity to go ahead and call these things out. Where where am I and allowing this culture to come in and, and allowing myself to seek to find answers within myself? Yeah, exactly. And it's important to see too, Andy, that it's not... Um the book isn't just a polemic against self-worship uh, or an apologetic for God worship. It's it's in, in traditional theological categories, um, it would be called an elanctic. An elanctic, it's not a word we use much anymore, but uh, Francis Turretin wrote the Institutes of Elanctic Theology. An elanctic is simultaneously a polemic against something and an apologetic for something. So mm-hmm. you're doing both at the same time. And so I'm arguing both against self-worship and for God worship uh, in a way that 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 doesn't leave the reader just sort of floating in abstraction. Uh, But here's, we aren't in outer space here. How does this re-enter the atmosphere uh, and come down to the real world uh, where we live and breathe? And so, yeah, I think it's, it's a helpful resource as I know for, um, I got a message from a dear friend of mine up in Minnesota who said his daughter's 13-year-old daughter's going through it, and she says she's she's eating it up, she's loving it. Um, so it's it's written in a way that a 13-year-old could yeah, I think so. Yeah. Could it would just be a page turner. And also for for parents to to strike a, a wide, wide range of folks out there who can I mean, and let's face it, what's the alternative in the culture? as people are buckling under the impossible weight of self-worship, where else do you go? Some folks would say, okay, well, I'm going to turn from the self. If my self is inadequate, history has taught us that oftentimes in seasons of radical autonomy and self-definition, they're frequently followed by by seasons of looking to the state as the ultimate meaning maker. So there's this pendulum swing. You can see it in ancient Greece. Um, you can see it in 1930s Germany. Um, you can see it in uh, Mao's China, in Stalin's Soviet Union, where an overemphasis on self leads to this pendulum swing, where, as Chesterton said, once you abolish God, the government becomes God, right? Mm. Um, so there is this sort of totalitarian swing and I, I dive into that in the sort of companion book we were talking before the show, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Um, it's sort of written in tandem with this one, where that one dives into the social justice questions of the age. Uh, and this one really zooms in on what's underneath a lot of the social, social justice ideology is this bad theology that puts the self center stage. Interesting. I wonder, too, about a hermeneutical foundation for this, too, with reference to Scripture. Yeah. Um, so I bet, I think I think uh, Viola Talbot uh, has like a, a statement on Aaron C., as does yeah. um, yep. Wesley Biblical Seminary. And that's not actually common within the Wesleyan tradition to have that perspective. But it, it should be <laughs> if, if yeah. we were following Wesley as a whole. But do you think that there is a connection with um, affirming scripture's authority with this direction i i have an idea and and i'm just curious to flesh that out here with you a little bit do you see see a connection between us affirming a source of truth outside of ourselves oh 100 yeah I, i've seen uh friends who once they budge on inerrancy one of the first steps is they find passages that um that rub them the wrong way yeah passages yeah. they they don't like and, and so that um, reveals an underlying epistemology that their final authority in the last analysis is, does this jive with my emotions? And so they'll say, you know, well, you know, I'll be a partial inerrantist. You know, some of it's inspired, but huh. uh, but not all of it. Okay, well, what's the part that you would say isn't the authoritative word of God? And lo and behold, it's all the parts they don't like. <laughs> yes. And so you end up now epistemologically what's in the driver's seat it's the fallen emotion emotional states of of the interpreter 
And so absolutely understand, you know, the biggest shifts in the history of culture before their artistic shifts, before their architectural shifts, before their um, economic shifts, they tend to be uh, originally epistemological shifts, how, shifts in how we know what we know. And so the Reformation, there's a reason of the five solas that sola scripturas put first. Um, you have to start with the epistemology. Where do I go for truth, for right, ultimate right, truth right. and final authoritative answers? Sola scriptura, scripture alone. That That is a clean epistemological break from the epistemology of, well, scripture plus tradition, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. when, when Descartes comes around with his famous cogito, I think, therefore I am. Right. He's ushering in a, an epistemological shift where the autonomous self is the starting point of knowledge, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. When the postmoderns come along and and destroy or deconstruct all meta narratives, and say that really you're, you're trapped in your skull sized kingdom, um, the the self, the the emotion um, becomes the the final word on reality, and so yes, all of these shifts are epistemologically uh, rooted. And so to affirm a good um, safeguard against the expressive individualism is um, a strong ringing affirmation of inerrancy and not just on paper. I'm all for statements and, sure. and, and creeds and, and declarations. Those are great. But on a deeper level, an epistemology isn't just how you would answer a question on a philosophy exam, but your epistemology is what you live out day in and day out. Am I trusting my emotions and what they right. say about me? Or am, am I going to the word and preaching to my emotions and setting my emotions straight in light of the word? So let me give just one quick example here. Um, I, I give a list on, a, on page 42. I say, you know, go through this list and tell me any of these feelings that maybe you had today. So I felt pretty much nothing like an emotionally dead fish. Um, I felt deeply secure in who I am and my life mission. Uh, I felt panicky and unsure of myself. I felt angry at myself. I felt confused, jumbled up inside. I felt confident, optimistic, overwhelmed, drained, fun, attractive, isolated, lonesome. I, I go through these emotions and I say, um, okay, on any given day, you're going to have these vacillating self-referential emotions, ways you feel about yourself that are in flux. Yeah. And so let's say you wake up one day and you just feel terrible, like a big waste of space or something. And ho-hum, nobody loves me. I'm just big waste of space. And then talking about, you know, a lived epistemology, you go to the scripture and you say, you know what? I'm going to distrust my emotions because they are not infallible. They are not inerrant. And let's mm. say you open up John 17 and you're reading along and here's, we get to eavesdrop on this intra-Trinitarian conversation, right? It's the son addressing the father the night before his execution in John 17. And Jesus says, you know, I'm not just praying for my apostles. I'm praying for everyone through the echelons of time who will believe in me through their word. That's us. He's praying for us. And he prays for our oneness, that um, we would be in him as he is in the Father and the Father's in him. And then in John 17, Jesus makes a staggering claim where he says, Father, you loved them, yeah. referring to us, and it's a little Greek phrase, kathos. You love them, kathos, you loved me. You love them even as, to the same extent that, equivalent to how you love me. And so now I'm living my epistemology. I'm, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to push back on my emotions here. I'm going to meditate on what God is saying here and take God's word more seriously than I take my fallen emotions. How does God love the son? If I'm loved, even as the father loves the son, well, the father loves the son infinitely and he loves the son irreversibly and unapologetically and with the full weight of his divine perfections. And, and now I'm pondering that I'm letting scripture be the ultimate authority and so I start thinking, okay, if I'm loved, even as the Father loves the Son, how am I loved? I am loved infinitely. I am loved unapologetically, irreversibly. I'm loved with the full weight of divine perfections. Mm. And now I'm at a crossroads. Who do I take more seriously? 
my fallen ho-hum emotions, do I follow my heart and, and let that define me? Or do I follow God's heart and what God says is authoritatively true about me? To, to sum it up, what God says is true about you is infinitely more trustworthy than yes. anything your fallen emotions right. say about you. Amen. So, And that exists outside of us. You know, like it's not something... It's not something that we create when the interpretive process begins with us and our experience, as opposed to a reality that's found in the, in, you know, when we're talking about scripture and what, what we know about God things like in the text, like yes. the text becomes a foundation outside of any of our, any of our projections, you know, even um, uh, God identifies himself to Moses, I, I am that I am. I will yes. be what I will be. I exist outside. This isn't yeah. dependent upon Whether you. Whether you feel it or not. Yes. Yep. I love I, this. There it is. And, and all so the, the privileges. Go ahead. Go ahead. What's that? Sorry, you cut out on me there. Oh, I'm sorry there. You're talking about the privileges. Oh, I, I was just going to say yeah. in all, all the privileges, all the privileges of our salvation, you know, our adoption, our, our new identity is adopted, cherished sons and daughters of God. That mm -hmm. is objectively true of us, as the Word of God declares it, whether you feel like a cherished, adopted son or daughter or not. Yes, amen. Um, your, your justification, your forever not guilty sentence, the fact that the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account, and all of your unrighteousness uh, was credited to His account, and that great substitution on the cross, that is true. Christ's imputed righteousness is yours, whether you feel it or not. <laughs> And so isn't that freeing to not limit my scope of reality to what I can emotionally access in the moment? Um, and again, I think a strong affirmation of the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture helps break us out of that skull-sized prison. Yes, I love it. That this book is so helpful. Um, as we've talked about it, and I hope as my listeners are, you know, just being in on this conversation that we're having, those of you with children, I think this would be a great thing to do to take to your dinner table, like or you know, take yeah. to your family prayer times just to go over the I'm gonna just read that just the um the names of all the chapters so people can get a feel for the things sure. you cover and these um the ten commandments that need to be boldly broken. Um live your best life. Uh, thou shalt always act in accordance with your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Nice play there. Um, okay, Boomer, thou shalt never be outdated, but always be on the edge of the new. Um, hashtag follow your heart. We already talked about that one. Uh, hashtag be true to yourself. Thou shalt, shalt be courageous enough to defy other people's expectations. Hashtag you do you. Thou shalt live your truth and let others live theirs. Hashtag YOLO, thou shalt pursue the rush of boundary-free experience. Hashtag the answers are within. Thou shalt trust yourself. Never let in anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a, quote, sinner. Hashtag authentic. Thou shalt invent and advertise thine own identity. Hashtag live the dream. Thou shalt force the universe to bend to your desires. Hashtag love is love. Thou shalt celebrate all lifestyles and love and love lives as equally valid. So just to give people a flavor of that, it, it, maybe we just have time. You, is there one of those that you want to just like drop a little line about or something? You're interested? We, I was planning to go through a few more, but we're running out of time. But I, I, I love that you're tackling all these ideas. Yeah, um, just the, the live the dream, I think, is... Um... The, this concept that I, I argue in chapter two, that this idea of creating your own reality is uh, through an act of willpower. It, it loves to market itself as cutting edge and, and, and trendy and so avant-garde. And I argue, look, man, this is the literally the oldest lie in the book. In Genesis three, <laughs> verse five, the serpent is, you know, coaxing uh, Eve to eat the fruit and he makes us, promise you'll be like god knowing good and evil and i unpack some of the uh the hebrew of what's going on there that it's basically hebrew shorthand for hey eve by eating the fruit you can become godlike in in becoming the sovereign meaning maker of all of reality you can define mm -hmm. the meaning of biology wow. you can define the meaning of your body you can define the meaning of marriage you can find the meaning of life it's all on you now you get to to 
take the mantle, take the, the sovereign scepter over existence. Uh, and so I argue in, uh, in the chapter um, about bending the universe around your desires uh, to live the dream, that when, we, when you break reality, when you break the structure of reality, when you transgress the givenness of things as set up and determined by the God who's actually sovereign, reality has a way of breaking us back. Mm, so mm -hmm. so um, I, I give a few, the, the whole book is sort of peppered with, with pop culture references and, and songs and movies and whatnot. Uh, and if, if you think of um, the movie break or the, the show, I should say the five season series, breaking bad, you know, spoiler alert to any listeners, but you get this um, sort of beta male, uh, high school chemistry teacher who's sort of an underachiever and he gets uh, a terrible terminal cancer diagnosis. And so he decides to support his family. He's going to break the structure of moral reality by cooking meth. And he rises to become um, sort of the, the king of his little meth empire in, in New Mexico. Mm. And um, it's a fascinating story. It's very, very well written. And the, the plot line of those five seasons tells the truth, moral truth, that as Walt White breaks the moral structure of reality, reality breaks him back. And so by the end, again, spoiler alert, he ends up miserable. He's completely alienated from his family. He's alienated the only friend he ever had. Um, and, and that just is a deep biblical theme that the more you break reality as set up by God, the more reality breaks you back. And so there's something to real joy and real meaning and real purpose that we tap into when instead of trying to author our own reality and, and running against the flow of the universe, um, we step into a position of obedience and, and really letting God be God, living in within what yeah. philosophers, they have a phrase, um, Carving the universe up at the joints is something philosophers have talked about for a long time. It's the idea of your life actually aligns with the contours and structure of reality. Mm. And when we live in honesty, authenticity before the fact that God is God and we are not, um, there's nothing else like it, man. There's just nothing yeah. better in the universe than to live the creator-creature distinction. God is infinitely better at being God than we are. Yeah. Amen. The, one of my favorite author, authors, uh, older authors, is a, a man who's a missionary to India named E. Stanley Jones. And he he had this saying, he said, like, if sin were natural, it would feed us. He says, but the opposite is true. It will bleed us. Hmm, exactly. bleed, like, we'll, we'll be broken. It will break the, the moral reality of the universe. When you, when you move against it, no matter where you are, it will break you. I, that's really helpful. Um, that it's been so helpful to have you on the podcast and encouraging to me, even though this is like hard things to talk about. Um, one of the things about my podcast is that it's called More to the Story, and I have a theological reason for that. In the sense that in, at our seminary we emphasize sanctifying grace is more than just getting your sins forgiven. But also, I love to hear about more of the story of other people. Is there is there more to this story than Thad? You you've probably been on a lot of podcasts on things. Is there something you don't talk about? Um, a hobby you have or something like that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, uh, the publisher came to me and said, Hey, we're, we're trying to have some incentives, uh, for pre-orders and you got any ideas. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to release an album with the book. Huh. Interesting. Um, of original songs and, uh, that, that tap into the themes of the book. So if, if listeners, go to jointheheretics.com. Uh, yeah. I think they can click on, on offers or bonuses or something like that. Uh, and there's a way there that they can access, or, you know, frankly, you can hop on Spotify uh, or Amazon music, wherever music is streamed and just type in my name, Thaddeus Williams. Yeah. Uh, there, there's an album called heretics. Um, that is all uh, original tunes. That's, encourage people to follow God's heart instead of theirs. Did you, are they, is this your music? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Songs recorded in my, uh, in my own garage. 
Awesome. Well, I, I, one of the things interesting, you talk about heretics. I um, mean, you've, you've quoted like four or five times Chesterton here. And um, my version of orthodoxy also has heretics at the front of it. Yeah. Yep. So and that, that's both both books so helpful to me. Um, I hadn't even thought about that connection of like dealing with with heresies. Did, did you have that in mind a little bit too? I did. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Dad, thanks so much. I hope I hope we get to be in the same room sometime. I get to shake your hand, have a cup of coffee. But yeah, I, I love this conversation and yeah. appreciate. Well, when we have the ultimate Calvinism versus Wesleyanism showdown, like the oh, cage match. Cage yeah. Match. I, there's been enough books and conversations and debates i say just straight up cage match okay I'm, men... I'm gonna go get fred sanders and jp <laughs> moreland from your school and i'm gonna They're join scrawny, the man. i could take them down i could take <laughs> them down just one or two elbow drops and sanders is out you know, <laughs> I, i'm gonna bring john frame okay John frame get him on the the top rope doing the turnbuckle okay. fly and uh and we'll settle this thing man no oh man <laughs> this will be fun looking for looking forward to that day that's so good thanks so much dad <laughs>